0: within us. God, we ask and pray this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen. When Darcy and I were preparing to get married, we had an interesting idea. One, we were in a unique time of life. We were transitioning from her home church to another church. We were dealing with both my dad and brother being high school football coaches in the state of Georgia, both their teams were looking at playoffs. We were trying to figure out how in the world do we get have a wedding in 2018 and family actually be present? How do we, on a small budget, afford this? Her family was in ministry for a number of years. We don't go into ministry for the money. So how do we make all of these logistics work? Especially that of catering a a, a big meal at the end of a wedding celebration. Because if we were going to have friends and family travel, we wanted to be able to celebrate with them. So how do we pull off a massive feast? Well, me being a good Southerner, especially a Southern Baptist, thought, what better idea than a potluck? Maybe we'll have a potluck ask people to bring their favorite family recipes and write them on an index card so we can have a meal and also build a recipe book for our new family. Well, long story short, we didn't end up going that route. We ended up choosing having to move the wedding up, but as as we began to, to flow this idea around, one of Darcy's cousins heard of it as we were telling some other family members, and she said, don't do that. It's just tacky. She was a suburban girl from the north. We we love her dearly, but her her thought was that is just tacky. Well, again, we didn't end up doing it because we had other plans, but you know, it's interesting what culture dictates. To be a Southerner who grew up on a farm, the idea of a potluck wedding feast was brilliant. It was just brilliant. I grew up in churches where ladies can cook, family members can cook, and I still prefer certain family members to others on the food chain. They thought it was tacky, though. You know, an interesting story comes in here in John 2. Another cultural thing. Cultural dictates the things we do, such as what's tacky and what's not. Well, here in this wedding celebration that's taking place, they're not debating on the matter of food, but there's an issue on drink. And it often bypasses us because we don't live in what's called an honor and shame culture. I'm going to get into that in a moment, but I want us to to consider, even as we read John 2, 1 through 12, that culture dictates certain things. It sets up the issues at hand that as Westerners we overlook. And yet there's much going on here behind the scenes that we need to zoom in and focus as we look to Christ this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. And while you're doing that, we've been studying the book of John now for a few weeks with just a, a minor stoppage around Christmas. And as we doing this we we've seen that there's a purpose statement in the book of John from John 20 30 through 31 which says Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing You may have life in his name so when we hear the purpose of this book to the call to believe Maybe as Christians, we struggle with this idea. Why why is we as Christians who have supposedly already believed, why why are we being called to believe again? Haven't we already done with that? But here's the thing. Belief is not a one-time thing. It's something that often wavers. Whether we want to admit it or not, if we're honest with where we've been this week, our belief at times has wavered. It's wavered in the moments of, Okay, Lord, I've I just got more than I can bear. You must not think very much and our belief wavers. Maybe our belief wavers in, in other various ways as we go through these various trials. Maybe our belief wavers in a good God in the fact of, Okay, God, how can you be good in all my life since believing you is nothing but a life of suffering? You begin to struggle and have to fight for that belief. So whether you're hearing this call to believe for the first time or for the zillionth time, we need to hear this call to believe because this ongoing belief is what strengthens us to endure in the faith. We need to see that we constantly need these truths as they point us back to Jesus in the hope we have in Him. May our belief not be stagnant. May it not be something we did, but something we're continuing to grow in. To have that belief strengthened as we consider the fact that who this Jesus is. We've already seen Jesus as the one who has come to be the God-made man. That he was eternally God with God from the very beginning in creation. That he was incarnate, born of a virgin. He took on human flesh to become and dwell with man. He's come as the Lamb of God who is to take away the sin of the world. This is who Jesus is. And we need to continue to be encouraged by him to have that belief strengthened. So here this morning from John 2, 1 through 12, that your belief may be strengthened. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm not going to try and it appears it's on the wrong one anyways to try and do this from the clicker. So apologize. So grab a Bible uh, in front of you. I thought I checked that earlier. Sorry. John 2 1 through 12 here's the word of the Lord on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine and Jesus said to her woman what does this have to do with me my hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days." What in the world? A wedding feast of an issue, and it's centered on wine. Well, here's what I think the main idea of John 2, 1-12, is telling us. Water becoming wine is a means of showing us something better has come in Jesus, and so that we might believe in Him. It's there on the screen. I'm going to read it again. Water becoming wine is a means of showing us something better has come in Jesus, and so that we might believe in Him. We're going to unfold this in three points. Point number one, a better purpose. Point number two, a better covenant. And point number three, a better Understanding. Let's look at point number one, a better purpose. Since the prologue of John 1, 1 through 18 has ended, there, the apostle John has been giving us little time markers, little location markers along the way. We've not focused on those too much to this point in our study, but I, I want to draw this out here. There in 129, we see this word, the next day. Then in 135, we see the next day. And then 143, we see the next day. Our our passage this morning starts with, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Time is moving on. It's been nearly seven days since John the Baptist was questioned and put on trial by the religious leaders of the day. It has been a number of days since the first disciples came to follow Jesus. They're beginning to spend time with him. But they've not stayed still as they went. Because look back at John one twenty eight. Look there with me. These things took place as John was baptizing. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. They went from there to the east of Israel on the opposite side of the Jordan. On the eastern side to where? Cana in galilee jesus and his disciples aren't staying still they're on the move life is happening i draw this out because i want us to understand something about jesus and this idea of discipleship if we think discipleship is something merely an academic classroom setting we're going to miss all of what discipleship is jesus as he spends time with his disciples he's living and going And inviting them along the way. Teaching them as they go. For crying out loud, they even go to a wedding. Jesus invites them with him to to attend this wedding so that they can be witnesses and see him do life. and, And actually celebrate life and the purpose of marriage. Friends, discipleship happens as we go. If you're looking at it merely academic, you're going to miss the means of discipleship and how we actually make disciples. Jesus doesn't want us to imitate something that he didn't even do. The call of discipleship here is to be doing life with others. A dear brother and and dear friend, uh, Max Stiles, served in the Middle East as a missionary for 20-30 years. He served in the heart of it I because there's still work going on I don't want to publicly share that with us live streaming but he he hosts a, a podcast he and another brother who is the president of reaching and teaching ministries they do a podcast called missions talk and in their last episode of missions talk here's what Mac talks about he's he discusses that while serving overseas They would invite people to live with them because they had the means of a bigger house in the Middle East. They would have different ones who were outside their nuclear family, outside their bloodlines, to come and live with them. They didn't necessarily sit down to study the Bible for hours together as a means of discipleship, but they spent time together in life talking about how the Christian life looks in the means of everything that they're doing. That was discipleship. Now, I'm not trying to encourage all of us to to go and invite somebody to come and move in with you to to do discipleship, but I want us to see that discipleship happens as we go about life. It means inviting people along as we do things. Inviting somebody on over to simply just have a meal and it doesn't have to be something like Cracker Barrel or even better yet, it doesn't have to be something like Tex Roadhouse or Calhoun's, if you are familiar with the Knoxville area, I don't know, the Brazilian Steakhouse. It can be something as simple as oatmeal. It can be something as simple as PB&J sandwiches after lunch on Sunday, inviting others in to do life with, to have a conversation around the coffee table, to run errands with. Some of you older members, you've got to run these errands. Both you and others have to run these errands. Why not do them together and talk about the matters of faith together? But why do I I go on to this? Because we need to see that Jesus is modeling and pointing us towards a better purpose. And there's not a better purpose than a discipleship-focused life. A life in which we are growing as disciples and a life in which we are pouring out into others and pointing them to Jesus and away from ourselves. Because that's what's at stake here in this wedding situation is is Jesus with his disciples are here. They're able to see what Jesus is about. They're able to understand that Jesus is doing far more than what it first appears when we read this. For example, we see, okay, they've been invited to a wedding in Galilee. The mother of Jesus is there in verse 1. But then in verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So they're in this wedding the disciples here with Jesus have been invited they're able to see what Jesus is about to do as they simply do life with Jesus but an issue arises there in verse 3 it says when the wine went out the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine now we hear something like this in our Western culture and think oh well party's about to be over or maybe we're even offended at the thought of wine at a wedding but see culture changes things cultural practices change things when they run out of wine in the West we live in the West no big deal when you live in an honor and shame culture it changes things significantly because everything about life about how you're seen and perceived in society and the collective whole that's what an honor and shame culture is all about you do something you bring shame not just upon yourself but the name of the family so as they run out of wine the bridegroom would have been responsible for providing the provision of the wedding again I told you culture changes things you who have had daughters and already gone through this you know the cost of weddings typically fall to the parents of the bride not here it's on the bridegroom. the bridegroom is probably the relative here of Mary and Jesus Mary being the mother of Jesus so Mary has a vested interest in this they've run out of wine our family member our relative is going to be shamed Jesus do something do something about this issue so he is not shamed so he's not shamed in front of his friends so he doesn't bring shame upon our family name so he's not shamed in front of his new bride and her family what a terrible way to start a marriage being shamed but notice Jesus he doesn't say okay I'm, I'm going to do this notice his response here in verse 4 and Jesus said to her woman What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First notice this address. He addresses his mother as woman. He doesn't say, mom, no. Woman. Now before somebody rises thinking this is derogatory type language, it's not. Again, culture and the way we communicate is different. We need to recognize that as we read the Bible. We're not, our Bible translations for the most part aren't asking us to, to have the Bible translated into our culture as we read. We're brought in, being brought into a real culture with real background there. So as it says woman, we're, we're not expecting, man, that, that's distasteful. No, we need to see, okay, this is a normal address towards his, any lady. It, it's the idea of the old southern man. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. It's that kind of respect that Jesus is still showing. But he's also showing as he addresses his mother as woman, that the tie is being severed between Jesus and his mother. He's no longer about the purpose of just being her son. He's about a greater purpose. What purpose? He says, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with us? I'm not here just to alleviate shame for a relative. I'm not here just so I can make this right, and everybody go on as if nothing happened for no purpose. i come for my hour. Now, John, the the apostle who who has written this book, uh, the gospel according to John, is going to hit on this over and over again. We're going to see my hour, my hour, my hour. He's pointing to the cross. His hour on the cross where Jesus is going to be crucified and killed to cover our sins. That's why, again, he's called the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Jesus has come for this purpose, for his hour and everything prior to that hour is building towards it to verify who is he so that the people may understand and believe. Friends, when we think about Jesus and his coming and his ministry, it wasn't just to do good. It was not just to do good. It was not just to bring comfort here in the now. If that's what we think that Jesus's purpose was we've missed it friends why is it we often struggle in our belief when setbacks come because our belief is grounded in the here and right now things of life we think Jesus is supposed to simply make life better he's to give make me joyful when I'm down he does bring joy But it's not because He just brings you joy to overcome whatever circumstance you're facing. It's the fact that what He's working toward is greater. He's come to bring life. He's come to make all things new again, to reconcile broken sinners right with a holy God. That's the purpose that Jesus came for. It's the purpose we're being invited into as His disciples. Yes, he's going to provide the wine. He's going to do those things. But he's come to make clear he is the king and he's doing all for the sake of his glory so that the world may know him. Mary gets this. Look at verse 5. It says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She receives that rebuke from her son. As he says, our ties are cut. I'm about the will of my father. And then she passes on to the disciples and the servants. You do whatever so he tells you. He's the king. He's the one who reigns. Daniel Dyke, a 17th century church, England clergyman, wrote, It is the obedience that belongs to Christ. Many will do something that Christ says, but not whatsoever he says. Christian, if we're united to the purpose of Christ, if we're clearly seeing his purpose, we should do whatsoever he says. Whatsoever he instructs us to do and calls us to do as his disciples. Why? We've seen him walk it. As disciples of Jesus, we should be following closely and and paying attention to what he says and commands us. There's a reason why we we alternate. If you've not noticed already, let let me make it clear. We, We alternate in between series from Old Testament to New Testament. That's not by accident. We do this because... We believe God's Word is profitable for teaching, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. We don't just go and and dive into our favorite passages. We, We want to see and hear from the whole counsel of God's Word so that we may be instructed by it. Jesus was obedient to all the old. He's the fulfillment of all the old. We can't rightly understand the new without the old. Nor can we rightly understand the old without the new. So we put these together and and teach so that we can be instructed on what does it mean to be obedient, to work towards the purpose of Jesus and what He's called us to. Namely, to do the will of the Father, to see all that the Father commands is better. That's the purpose we need to be living for. Christian, do we understand we have been called to go and make disciples of all nations We're called to do this work. But how are we to do this work if we are failing to be obedient to all that Christ commanded Himself? We need to labor for this purpose. To labor towards the purpose of obedience to the Father and His will, just as the Son did. This is the core of discipleship. This is the better purpose in which to live for. For Christian, let us live for that better purpose because His ways are better. Than ours. Let's live for it. But Jesus didn't come just for a better purpose. He came for a better covenant. And that's where we turn here in our second point this morning. Then verses 6 through 10. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of detail. But it's more than just again. This idea of water being turned to wine. Underlying it. Is the old covenant being tossed out old covenant saying it has run dry look there at verse 6 now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim these wood stone jars were used to contain water, to purify oneself when they become in contact with something or someone unclean. When they would touch somebody who was unclean or something that was unclean like a dead carcass. I don't know about you all, but growing up on a farm, there was always rope kill. Always. Maybe it was a coon, maybe it was a cat, maybe it was something. And they have to go and scoop it and shove it in the ditch. To keep it from just stinking. The moment I would touch something like that to get it out of the way, I would become unclean. So therefore, this purification would have been intended that going and have to wash my hands in that to cleanse before I would eat something and put in my body to keep from making myself unclean. This is is what the Old Testament Would have been understood as by society. They would have used this purification system in their day. Thinking this is what religion is. But Jesus tells them to fill it with water. But watch what he does. There in verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now listen even more carefully here in 9 and 10. fills them, has the servants fill them with water up to the brim, and it becomes wine. We know this because of them taking it to the the master of the feast. It's now wine. This old law of purification is now changed and transformed to something else. But it's symbolizing something much more. The wine has ran out, the old wine, but now I'm bringing something better. The old of purification is running out. A new means of purification is coming in me. A new means of covenant and promises is coming in me. In the book of Hebrews, we understand that it's talking about Jesus is the better prophet, priest, and king. He's the better prophet. He speaks a better word than the prophets of old. We see that he's the better priest in communicating a better covenant because he no longer needs to be replaced. Jesus lives forever. Therefore, no new priest needs to step in and take over. He's the better king because no one needs to take his seat again. If you've ever read through the books of 1st or 2nd Kings, you see king after king after king coming to sit on the line. It starts there with David and then Solomon and then it goes to Ahab and Ahaz and, and just on down the line. Each of these kings died and new one must step in the throne and in their place. There's much more going on there. But, but the point is, no new king needs to come in this better Jesus, this better covenant that he is offering. Yes, it talks about wine, and and we'll come back to that here in a moment. But the reality is here, Jesus is the better that's come. The old covenant was good, but the better has come and been kept until now. The old covenant was a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was a promise that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, that the, the nations would be blessed in him through Him and His family line. Of course, Jesus comes through that family line. Jesus is is indicating here and teaching that He is the better covenant. He's offering it with better terms. He's not offering something that needs to be repeated over and over and over. Reality of purification, it must be done over and over. But Jesus comes, wants to lay down His life for all, never needing to do it again. You see the better covenant being talked about. When the master of peace says, now you have kept the good wine until now. The good covenant has been kept until now in Jesus. He's come with the better covenant and its better promises. So that we once and for all may be restored to a holy God and draw near to him and have life in him and see the better covenant with its promises. It's a better way. Charles Spurgeon wrote, he says, if there had been sufficient wine for the feast, Jesus would not have worked this miracle and they would not have tasted this purest and best of wine. It is a blessed need that makes room for Jesus to come in with miracles of love. It is good to run short that we may be driven to the Lord by our necessity." For he will more than supply it. The old wine of the old covenant has run dry. But a new and better has come. But let me show you now what this actually means. If you have your bulletin, I invite you to to take it out or go ahead and turn to Isaiah 25, 1 through 9 again. We read this passage earlier in the service uh, as our scripture reading and then prayed a prayer of praise of thanksgiving for it. There's something much more beautiful here that's gone on. Particularly there in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, well refined. A feast of well-aged wine. A feast means plentiful. Go back with me here to verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, 20 or 30 gallons, each of these. And this water, it was filled to the brim, so they're as full as they can be, and it was changed to wine. It's not just a little wine. This amounts to somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine he's not just given a little bit more he has brought this feast jesus turning water to wine is the representation of him fulfilling this feast and bringing it that this is foreshadowing that he's the one to bring this about this feast the celebration of both food and wine to take place in the celestial city of heaven, on the streets of gold, Jesus is going to bring it. It's coming in Him. You see, water being turned to wine is not just some accidental thing. It's warning us Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He's coming both to fulfill the old and to make way for the new so that we may draw near to our Holy God. Brothers and sisters, see the better covenant that has been promised in Jesus and let us draw near to it. Let us rest in its promises once and for all. But there's one last thing we need to see here. All of this leads to a better understanding. And that's where we turn in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus, did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This better understanding is pointing to the fact that Jesus' glory was made known through this sign. Now the temptation here is for us to, to look at a passage like this and get the application wrong, to miss the point of what it's all saying. The temptation is to turn and, and look this place and say water to wine and make an argument for alcohol. Now let me make this statement and then we'll get back to the main point. Friends, we do need to pay attention to, to such realities. Jesus here, he does turn water into literal wine. He doesn't withhold the good of the the vine he invites the people to take in it and expects them to have self-control and not lead to drunkenness you know that point in the sunday school for those who were in there that talked about adding to god's word just like eve did that's often what we've done in the west with alcohol saying that it should be something forbidden for every christian when the bible remains silent on this Bible gives prohibition for a select few but it actually never is forbidden for Christian believers it's up to every Christian to make this determination on their own exercising their Christian Liberty this is part of the better covenant that Jesus brings there's certain matters that are not clearly said do this don't do that that is up to the Christian to choose what is right and wrong for their individual heart and soul each exercising their own self-control and wisdom in those matters. So we need to be careful where the, the Bible doesn't forbid. But that's not even the point here. But I bring it up because we look at this, we see it, we need to acknowledge here, it really is wine. Jesus didn't forbid it. Neither should we forbid the things that Jesus has not. We need to be wiser in that and stop adding to God's word where it is silent. Now, coming back to the main point, the better understanding. The better understanding here is not the fact of whether or not we should drink wine. It's a better understanding of belief in Jesus that He is who He says He is. Here, Jesus has willed that water become wine. He has willed that water become wine. Jesus exercising authority over substances of this created world. Man. Think think about even going to turn one of those barrels if you had the willpower to turn it into uh, Coca-Cola or if you're unsanctified, a Pepsi-Cola for for a certain individual. You know what I'm talking about. But the point is, we can't do that. Jesus does. Jesus turns this water to wine by his will. (laughs) Christian, think about this aspect. If he's able to turn water into wine... Here's what J.C. Ryle says. He says, if he wills their salvation and the daily supply of all their spiritual need, they are safe and well provided for, as if they saw him standing by them. Christ's will is as mighty and effectual as Christ's deed. Let me repeat that quote. If he wills their salvation and the daily supply of all their spiritual need, they are safe and well provided for as if they saw him standing by them. Christ's will is as mighty and effectual as Christ's deed. Because the Son of God wills that water becomes wine, how much safer are we that he can will not only our salvation, but will and empower us to carry out our the faith that He can will us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified and ultimately come to the point of glorification. No wonder the disciples heard and saw these things and came to the moment of belief. They understood not everything, but they understood enough to believe in this moment. They've seen the sign that Jesus did and they believed in Him, they followed Him. There, verse 12. And after this, they went, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The disciples clung probably all the more closely to Jesus in this moment because of that belief. They came to this better understanding to worship their God and what he had provided there in Jesus. Friends, we need to see Like these first five disciples, these greater signs. And yet, still greater are we going to see as we continue to work our way through the gospel according to John. The greatest of these is the fact that Christ died and rose again and ascended into heaven. All of these signs are to strengthen our belief in Him. The fact that He is able to turn water to wine should strengthen us. We have a mighty Savior who's able to do far more abundantly than we could dare dream. He doesn't provide just barely enough for salvation. He provides it abundantly. This is the Jesus we come to worship. And this is the Jesus we need to rest in and to believe in. But friend, if you were here and you are not one who is a believer, what more evidence could you want Maybe you question, why is it then good people suffer if there is such a good God? Why is it people get sick? Why is it people die? Why is there evil in the world? Maybe, maybe these are your stumbling blocks. Well, for you or you who are doing evangelism in the midst of someone like this, these things happen because sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, brokenness and decay and death followed. And it is still raining. And yet this is exactly why the Savior of the world has come, to undo it, to overturn it. And he's showing that as he has the authority over creation itself in the turning of water to wine. This Jesus that we're calling you to believe in, to rest in, he's undoing all that evil. He's undoing that. And death, it's soon to be destroyed because he has risen from the dead. Death has no claim on the king of glory. Will you believe in this king of glory? Will you keep pressing on towards this king? And have confidence he's got the whole world in his hands. Let's believe in him. Let's believe in his better purpose. Let's believe in his better covenant. And let's believe with this better understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have provided.